action. Welcome to Torn Stumps, a trash movie podcast with me, Robert Gershenson, photographer and head of podcast at Trash, which can be found at movetotrash.co.uk. And Joshua Winning, the greatest film critic you've never heard of. And we're going to the movies. After being mistaken for a spy by agents of a mysterious organisation and framed for the murder of a UN diplomat, Madison Avenue executive Roger Thornhill, played by Cary Grant, goes on the run, determined to clear his name. He seemingly has an ally in Eve Kendall, played by Eva Marie Saint, but her allegiances are ambiguous at best. Hotly pursued by villain Philip Van Damme, played by James Mason, and shadowy CIA agents, this is a tense game of cat and mouse. So I've never really been much of a Hitchcock fan. I've seen The Birds... Oh, yeah. I quite liked that. Mm -hmm. Even if it's just for goofy, look how shit the special effects are. (laughs) But also I've seen Psycho. Who hasn't? Who hasn't? But I've also have massive issues with the end of Psycho, where everything's just suddenly explained to us. There's that tag on the end where it goes, it was him all along. Mm, I've forgotten about that. I see I haven't watched Psycho in a long time. We're going to do Psycho in the double episode with the Shot for Shot Gus Van Sant 1998 remake. Are we? Yes. Okay. Um, But this, I was pleasantly surprised at how fresh it feels. Yeah. This, yeah. Hitchcock said that he wanted to do something fun, lighthearted, and generally free of the symbolism permeating his other films. That's what he told uh, Francois Truffaut in his book. Um, And yeah, it, it... it feels like um, Hitchcock kind of doing what he does, but with like pin sharp kind of precision. Yeah. Um, he he wrote it with Ernest Lehman. Um, and Ernest Lehman said that he wanted to make the ultimate Hitchcock film. And you can kind of see that with this film because he... Hitchcock had come from um, other thrillers that he'd done, like Suspicion and, and Notorious with Cary Grant. And he'd almost kind of got the formula down to a fine art. And that's so evident in this film because it it just feels like this perfectly elegantly made thriller that knows which boxes to tick and when to tick them. I think for me, the reason it felt so fresh is that it has been copied so much. It's so ingrained into the form of film that for audiences who... Maybe they only watch Marvel films or maybe they only watch Jason Bourne films or maybe they only watch the the James Bond films that Daniel Craig has done. Mm. They could easily jump into this and watch this and not feel alienated because the style is the same. Yeah, this this has been called the first James Bond film that didn't star James Bond. <laughs> it's, it's kind of that's the formula is this, this kind of well, that's how it used to be before Daniel Craig came along, which yeah. is this suave guy who kind of almost bumbles his way very suavely kind of through a mystery picking up women on the way um and like this film is oddly sexless in the same way that early bond films were so even though early bond had double entendre and you know ladies and all that stuff it um it you know they still felt sexless and that's the same here like when um carrie grant and it was name either saint marie when they have their train chat where it's all very kind of salacious and suggestive, 
it doesn't feel sexy. <laughs> no, it's not sexy at all. But he does say, I'd love to take you back. To, if I had the room, I would take you back there. Yeah. And did they dub her line? Didn't she say, it looked like her mouth was literally saying, I don't, I'll eat your dick. I don't know. Oh. <laughs> I don't make love on an empty stomach. But I think they changed it to something like, I don't something else on an empty stomach. So obviously that was just a bit too racy. Just too much for the MPAA. Unless they just thought that the thought of her having sex after having filled her belly full of food was just too disgusting. Yeah, I can't move after I've had a big meal. <laughs> I'm really concerned. Why wasn't Cary Grant... He just didn't seem all that concerned about being kidnapped. Sorry, don't you mean Archibald Alec Leach? <laughs> That's Cary Grant's real name. Oh, so right. hilarious. <laughs> I just love that he's called Archibald. Archibald? Archibald. Um, he didn't seem concerned. No, he kind of like, he... Uh, just quipping jokes. He just charms his way. He just oozes his way through the whole thing. He's like, look here, old boy. Like, I'm just, I've told you I'm not this this chap Kaplan. Like, yeah. Don't be so silly. I'm going to go home now. Um, yeah, it's like, it's a weirdly British reaction to being told that you're somebody else. I thought it was going to go like this. Eventually, we would see another character who Cary Grant would also play, and that would be the Kaplan. Well, that that would be the reason why. Yeah, so that would be the reason why there's this mistaken identity because he looks like the same person. Yeah, I like that they didn't do that because it just makes it even more. I don't know. I, I like the idea that this guy literally doesn't exist. He is just a name that is being used by. I don't even know who, the like, CIA. to say it's the CIA, right? Yeah. So it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist at all. Nobody has seen him because he doesn't exist. So I love that when he's saying, I am not this guy, it's like, well, prove it. Well, you can't prove that you're not somebody who doesn't exist if because there's no evidence. I get that he doesn't exist, but why do they have a hotel room with suits for him? It's keeping up appearances, isn't it? It's like, if someone says, oh, did you do Kaplan's suits? Did you dry clean his suits? Yeah, I did. I took them up to his room, blah, blah, blah. So it's kind of, it builds this idea of a man who doesn't actually exist. That, that scene in the CIA office when they're explaining that to us, yeah, that was so jarring. It was so yeah. lazy. So unnecessary. No one would talk in that convoluted way. Yeah. And like in a mysterious way where they don't really say anything. Well, but they, they reveal to us that he is completely, they, re- they reveal to us that he is completely a, a, a fictional character that they've made him up yeah. and then they have a debate whether they need to go help Cary Grant's character mm. but the way they do it is talking this way that people who know would never I mean it, I wouldn't say to you I'm now going to plug this microphone in and we're going to do a podcast I would say <laughs> let's, let's start yeah I don't need to explain everything to you well sometimes you do but I, sometimes I, yeah. I do I mean most all the time I have to explain <laughs> everything to you but I just felt that was really lazy. And they did that somewhere else in the film where they go, the microfilm's in this yeah. statue that you've just won in the auction. Yeah. It's like, James Mason would know that. That's the reason he bought that statue. It was James Mason. Yes, James Mason. Uh, James Mason. James Mason. My lovely yeah. Lolita. I knew I recognised him. He was great. I liked him a lot. Oh, I love the way he talks. Yeah. I love that way that James Mason talks. And that I love that that initial... Uh, kind of moment where Cary Grant goes back to that house and he's got his mum with him. Yeah, why take your <laughs> it's mum? It's so weird. That relationship with his mum is hilarious. It's so weird. weird. Would you phone my mother for me? Phone him yourself, you fucking baby. <laughs> and also maybe don't phone your mum. Yeah. Um, but yeah Just I love- text her. <laughs> 
I just love when they go back to the house and, and the, the wife is like, oh, hello, Roger or something. Yeah. And, um, and then it turns out it's the gardener and it's like, oh, yeah, what is going on? It's very well done. Oh, it's very well done. Like I was constantly questioning things. I was constantly asking questions, which is what you want from a thriller. Yeah. You want the audience asking questions. Where the fuck have these people gone? Mm. Where has, where, why, why has the drinks cabinet been replaced with books? Yeah. Why does she, on the train, why does she suddenly start talking to him yeah. and know that he's wanted for murder? Why does she continue to talk to him? Mm. <clears throat> all these yeah. questions, all these questions. And they've, they've Why become, is she covering for him? Yeah, and they've become tropes. So they've become complete tropes, so opening yeah. the cabinet and finding the books is the biggest trope in a thriller you mm. can possibly have, especially a mistaken identity one. Yeah. So this set, the tropes for the genre. Why did James Mason know he'd be on the train? All these brilliant questions that just mm. keep you in. But by the one hour and about 15 mark, I was getting really tedious. I was like, I need some clues. I yeah. need some answers because so far it's all been setups and escapes mm. and I need a bit of variety now. Yeah. But I think the, the th- thing that really keeps it going is the fact that it is basically just a series of location-specific set pieces that are done really, really Mm. well. And they all begin kind of at a certain level and they escalate into a a mini-climax. So it's like the scene in the train, the scene with the crop duster, the auction house. Oh, God, that plane scene was amazing. I know. And do you know what's hilarious, though, is that Hitchcock's original idea for that scene was that he wanted a tornado to chase (laughs) Cary Grant. And his writer was like, yeah, I don't think so. Let's have a plane. How the fuck do you charge it? In, in it's the like context in Twister, of the film Twister. How did they outdrive the Twisters? But at least in the in the context, at least in the context of that film, they're chasing Twisters. This yeah. Twister, what, just suddenly comes out of nowhere and has a mind of its own. And yeah. the, but that I was tense during that um, it's, that plane scene. It is phenomenal. The photography mm. is brilliant because it's all done in camera. Yeah. Well, I mean. Obviously, it's in the studio, some of it. Yeah. But, um, but it's not a case that they've superimposed the plane. And, and, no. And, well, yeah. it's, it's brilliant. They when shot like, that he, plane. He jumps down and, you know, the plane goes over his head. But it doesn't go over its head, but it's yeah. suggested. And then we have the, the gunfire on, the, on the, yeah. the pavement or the, the, the rock near him. It is beautiful. Are you going to say your word? What word? It's a masterclass intention. Because <laughs> it, um, it's like Tony Curtis from <laughs> some like oh, it's a masterclass intention. But it, it is a masterclass, and there's you know there's no music. It's just the mm. rumble of the plane drawing closer and closer, and it's kind of it's ominous and creepy rather than a tense action scene. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. not an action scene. It's a really creepy kind of paranoid nightmare kind yeah. of coming to life. It's a weird chase scene yeah as opposed to a with full a plane action scene yeah exactly. and we never see the pilot no yeah who was actually flying that plane was it we that guy no idea that guy who threw the knife in the back of the of the un dude potentially maybe he can do everything he's like the swiss army knife man yeah or oh, he lost his knife yeah but nolan adopted that for dunkirk we never see the german pilots who are chasing yeah. um bane yeah the plot thickens Mm. the photography elsewhere was brilliant i loved the big wide shots especially the one after he runs away from the un building the camera's like really high and the frame is just sliced into three and he's running around it's 
gorgeous. Is it this shot here? Yes, that one. Did I, you screenshot it? Yeah, I screenshot it because I just couldn't believe it was real. And if you look really closely, it's actually a matte painting. Oh, God, I can believe that. But he's, because, but he's but running, he's running in for there. real. Yeah. Yeah. How did they do that? Because that's don't... an impossible shot. That's like a God's eye view shot, basically. You could, I mean, you could do that now. Well, yeah, now. You, you could, could do that now, even out of a computer. You could do that yeah. by, you know, a, a drone. But the composition wouldn't be as perfect where it's got the building on the right hand side and you've got the kind of pool in the middle and the yellow taxis yeah. and that slash of pavement where he runs. But just That's my lo- fa- one of my favourite shots in a film ever, I think. It's gorgeous. And it, it mirrors the, the opening um, title sequence yeah, yeah. where everything stuff. is on the side of that building. Yeah, which was also kind of stolen-ish by um, David Fincher when he did his opening credits for Panic Room. He kind of updated that idea where... Um, on the, oh, he did it on the, the, the cityscape. Yeah, so we've yes. got like 3D CG text kind of sitting within the landscape of the, of the city. Yes. Yeah. God, yeah, I haven't watched that in a long time. That's a good film, Panic Room. But I love the, the idea that in this film that he is just completely alone and that shot Apart reiterates that. <laughs> but even she doesn't believe him. Yeah. So she's like, and he leaves at one point. He leaves her to go get a taxi, but he is completely alone. Mm. And when he does meet up with an ally, Eva Marie Saint, she's so ambiguous. You don't know if she's going to double cross him. You don't know if she's going to help him. Mm. He really is alone. And just before the crop duster scene, the opening shot of that section is again from on high. And he's just waiting by the bus stop alone Mm. in this vast space. Yeah, it's very clever. It positions him as this kind of tiny little person who's just against the world isn't it yeah and it's such a contrast in that first shot the one that you love and i love that's a cityscape it's a yeah. building and the, the 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 glass beams are are bringing our eye down to him mm. but over here he's in the countryside so wherever he goes he is alone he can't escape from that from being alone and being completely overwhelmed and engulfed in this weird mystery that he's weirdly stumbled into yeah I just, he's so great in this. He kind of, I, Cary Grant, I've seen him in, you know, all his famous ones, like Philadelphia Story and His Girl Friday and Bringing Up Baby, all the all that great stuff. Um, but like he, at the time, surely he's the only guy who could really pull this off because he just has that effortlessly suave, kind of funny, charming thing. But he's also an everyman. Like he's, He's the everyman you could be if you had a great tan and a great suit. That's, that was one of the things that I felt really disappointed with about the film. Mm. Is he an everyman? He's meant to be, isn't he? Or he's meant to be kind of like the suave 50s version of an everyman. He's like the, the, the guy in the office. Because to me, an everyman is a zero. They're always zeros. Mm. And they go through this extraordinary journey and they turn out to be heroes. Mm. So he's, he's a very successful Madison Avenue executive. He's suave. He's handsome. He's calm and collected. He's very refined. He's like the George Clooney of... Exactly, the 50s, yeah. I mean, there, there's always been comparisons because they do have a, a very strange resemblance. Yeah, they do. But I just didn't buy that he was the everyman. So mm. for his journey, I didn't fully... I wasn't fully on that with him. Yeah. For him going to hero. You know that he's successful professionally, but then you later on discover he's had two divorces. And like the first person he goes to is his mum. So he kind of is 
But they said, you know, he said, they said I I led too dull a life. His life doesn't seem that dull. (laughs) He's, you know, he's got an assistant who can call his mum if he wants to. (laughs) He goes to these swanky restaurants. He can afford to get a cab across town in in Manhattan in the 50s. Yeah. He doesn't have to walk or get the subway. What did you think about Eve St. Marie? I thought she was all right. I mean, I didn't think there was anything to write home about. It Mm. wasn't anything special. Because for me, she felt like, you know, the manic pixie dream girl who's like this idealized hippie, like Zooey De- Deschanel in every film that she's oh, ever right. done. Oh, right. Yes, yes, like yes. Kind of manic pixie dream girl where Hipsterish, she's kind of hipster, but, but per- the perfect woman, if you like hipster girls who can sing, she likes, she likes all the same bands you do. She wants to have sex in the shower. She's that She likes Ringo instead of Paul. Well, yeah, exactly. But this, I feel like Eve St. Marie's character, she... It's almost like the old version of that. She's like the 50s version. She's like Hitchcock's idea of a perfect woman, where she's kind of glacial and unobtainable unless you play your cards right. Yeah. And she's kind of... She's a femme fatale. She's kind of a femme fatale, but she also doesn't have any power in the story. She has no agency whatsoever. She's kind of... She says, I had nothing to do that weekend, so I decided to fall in love. It's just kind of, ugh, drippy, like... There's she, no tragedy with her. She's supposed to be this powerful female character. And she comes across as that at the start when you don't know anything about her. Yeah. But as the story progresses, she loses more and more power until she does have to be saved by Karen, Cary Grant. And it's just really disappointing because you want her to be like Black Widow or like Red Sparrow. Or you want her to be somebody who lives in the spy world and is going to you know, kick everyone's ass. But is that a sign of the times? Oh, yeah, I think so, definitely. Like, has Hitchcock ever had a really empowered female character? I don't think so. I know that he's got this thing about blondes and how they're kind yeah. of, their distance, there's a distance between you and, and the female blonde character. Uh, but he also weirdly kind of idealizes them and puts them kind of on a pedestal. Like Grace, Grace Kelly in Rear Window is this beautiful woman and she says all the right things and she kind of stays over and like she looks after jimmy stewart and um and obviously marion crane and psycho she she kind of is a femme fatale who's then punished for what she's done yeah yeah i mean books have been written about hitchcock's relationship to women and especially his depiction of women in film and this film doesn't in any way change that well it seems that he wants to put them on the pedestal but he doesn't want to give them any sort of power potentially over him no no yeah he would never want to see a strong-willed woman no but hilariously we know that his wife was extremely strong and independent and she you know as we saw in the film hitchcock she's (laughs) the reason psycho is so good but she's she wasn't a young blonde woman no no that was definitely his kind of fetish yeah was the young blonde woman which he you know which he never, we, as far as we know, he never attained or he never uh, got himself. Is there a, a pressure and a snobbery to enjoy films like this without question? What, and so don't question the, the role of the blonde woman and all that kind of stuff? No, no, just as in terms of <clears throat> North by Northwest is considered a classic. Yeah. It is a film from the 50s, so it's part of Hollywood's golden era, even though it's sort of tailing off towards the end of the golden era. Is there, a, is there a snobbery and, a, and a, an expectance on f- people like us who are into film 
to like these films and enjoy them and say we enjoy them without question? Depends who you talk to, I suppose. I think, you know, whenever a film has a certain reputation, a certain status, and people obviously enjoyed it, and this this is like 100% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes and all that stuff. Um, so, yeah, I think there is a pressure that you maybe should like a film or maybe you should be more inclined to like a film. Like some Like It Hot, you obviously weren't a huge fan of, but it is this enormous thing, like this iconic film. I don't know. Do you feel a pressure to like films? I'm always disappointed when I don't. Like I always go into a film hoping for the best and then if I'm disappointed, it it, it is a disappointment. I think sometimes people can be a bit snobby. They can Mm. go... You know, oh, you didn't like some like it hot, yeah. or you didn't like Shawshank Redemption, because it, it it really does come What's down to wrong with you. Well, yeah, it comes, <laughs> to, but it comes down to personal taste. Yeah, and unfortunately, not all films that come out now, I'm gonna like. So, you have to assume not all films that were released in 1959 or 1964 or 1941. I'm not gonna like all of them, but seemingly of all the films that came out. In 1941, we only ever seem to talk about Citizen Kane. That's the one that seemed <laughs> to have lasted the test of time. And I happen to love Citizen Kane. I don't necessarily feel I want to watch North by Northwest again. Hmm. It's not the only film that came out in 1959, but it seems to be one of the ones, along with Some Like It Hot, that people are still talking about now. Yeah. I really like, I really like this film. I actually weirdly had it on in the background a few weeks ago when we were like playing board games and stuff it's like a nice film to have on in the background because it looks nice it's you know it, it doesn't demand your full attention so you'd seen it before um, i've seen this i've seen this a couple of times right yeah i uh, did enjoy it yeah it's good fun i do really enjoy it but it's one of those films where the mystery is fun until you know what's going on and then, yeah what's the second viewing like yeah it's it's quite a slow film actually. Yeah. Um and you're kind of I think even by get... even by fifty standards. Yeah, it is quite slow. It's, it is quite long as well. Yeah. I'm not in a rush to watch it again, but I know I like it. And I d I'm I am a fan of Hitchcock's work because I do think that he is a fantastic was a fantastic filmmaker. You know, he's got so many classics under his belt and that are constantly referenced, like even in Carrie that was referencing Psycho enormously in the music, uh, in the fact that it's Bates High School. You know, these films take on a life of their own and they they kind of stay in popular culture. Do you think audiences are crying out for older films? Possibly. I think there's definitely, there's always nostalgia about older films, isn't there? And I think that a lot of the time now, you're almost beholden to technology. And I think that's why people enjoy watching films that are set back before we all had mobile phones. And, yeah. Because um, this film would be very different if he had a mobile phone. He yeah, would just, he would just <laughs> literally go, look, it's my Facebook profile. <laughs> yeah. This is me. They go, oh, we've got uh, the wrong guy. Sorry. Move along, sir. I yeah. feel that people are wanting more classic films from the 50s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s. Well, there's that streaming service, movie that that is all about unearthing gems from past decades strangely to say streaming services up until like two years ago Mm. all the films on netflix were probably no later than the late no earlier than the late 70s yeah only now that you know the gems are starting to to pick up so i've I've got a feeling that you know people really want to see all these old films cinemas 
are putting on like retrospectives and yeah you know you could go to you know the the prince charles cinema and see a hitchcock retrospective the regent street cinema always as a standard shows anything from the 20s up to you know whatever came out last year well there's that there's that um freeview tv channel now talking pictures which it's got all the oldies on it's got loads of oldies on and a lot of it is rubbish but a lot a lot of the time they unearth something amazing like i think there's a film called the lady vanishes which they uh-huh. discovered which is fun a fantastic film now that we do have access to films in different ways i think it's just easier to find them now and there is there is a demand for them obviously what did you make of the climax on mount rushmore it's great it's such a great idea you know they almost they almost called the film the man on Lincoln's nose. Yeah, yeah. So, that would be a great title. <laughs> yeah. It's a it's a great ending. It's so iconic. And but the, it's so weird though that that is such an icon- iconic sequence and yet this film is known for the crop duster scene. Yeah. But is that just because the crop duster scene is on all the posters? I don't know. I think it's because the crop duster scene still looks good. Yeah. Oh, well I mean the the Mount Rushmore thing is still pretty awesome. <sighs> Yeah, I you can think tell it's it, in the studio. Obviously. I think that's aged way more mm. than the crop duster scene. I think the crop duster scene still looks great. Yeah. By today's standards, you can obviously tell it's shot in the fifties because yeah. the camera's not moving with the plane. But yeah. the Mount Rushmore scene, I definitely think that has aged. What about the final shot? Oh, I mean, that's Hitchcock's done that loads of times. The train going in the tunnel. That's just his favourite end <laughs> shot. Didn't he do that in the 39 steps as well? I haven't seen that. That Actually, when you were saying about Mount Rushmore, that made me think of what you said about him being like a tiny person in a massive landscape. And that's exactly what... Four giant heads. That works. He's, yeah. like, he's literally hanging off the faces of gods and kind of trying to, trying to survive. And that is... That's a great way to end the film, isn't it? Because it just sums up exactly what the entire film has been about. So that was North by Northwest, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Have you ever been North by Northwest? Do you know that that's actually an impossible thing to do because it's North West by North? What do you mean? You can't go North by Northwest. It's not a thing. It's not a direction. Is it not? No, it's North West by North or nothing. Yeah. No, because in between north and west is northwest. No, it's nonsense. Apparently, I don't know what I don't know anything really. But what I read on the internet is that north by northwest isn't a thing. What does that even actually mean? Going north <laughs> by northwest, or even if you go west by northwest, because <laughs> it goes never eat shredded wheat. So, so north, north, south, east, west. In between north and west is northwest. And then in between north and northwest is north northwest, right? <laughs> All right. So did you like the film? Because if you did, drop us a tweet at Torn Stubbs Pod. And let us know if you can go by north, if you can go north by northwest. Because I'm confused. I'm pretty sure that you can't. What's that festival? South south by southwest. Yeah, look, there is no such thing as north by northwest on the compass. Northwest by north, however, is one of the thirty-two points of the compass. Fucking so Alfred Hitchcock the, um, lying to us. The co-writer of the film, uh, Thingy Layman, said that the working title for the film uh, was In a Northwesterly Direction. <laughs> God. It's got a ring to it, hasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it has a real ring to it. If you like film, music, culture and theatre, head to movetotrash.co.uk. We're off in the northwesternly direction. Until next time, I remain Robert Gershenson. I'm Joshua Winning. Cut.